Bremer News Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Hey everyone, we did our Mythical Astronomy live stream last Sunday on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel and it went really well. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions and came out and for those of you who weren't able to make it here is the slightly edited version for your listening enjoyment. We'll be doing these once a month in between podcasts, so all you have to do is post your questions or comments or insights on the WordPress or YouTube versions of the podcast after a new episode comes out, and I'll be collecting those for the following live stream. Live streams are a ton of fun. They give you and I a chance to interact a bit more, and it gives me a chance to talk about things unscripted and off the cuff, which I enjoy. And some people tell me that Sometimes that's an easier way for them to understand some of the concepts I'm talking about. So, with that said, here is this Sunday's live stream. All right, thanks for coming, everyone, to the first Mythical Astronomy live stream. I've got esteemed guests here. I've got... Aziz Al-Duri from History of Westeros. I've got patrons, Pegleg Pete, Nisha Patel. Thanks for coming, everyone. So, since everything's working, I think I will go ahead and get us started. So, first question comes from Melanie Patrick from Patreon. Do you think GRRM uses the mythological astronomy as a chapter or character outline of sorts? I often think about the depth and breadth of his work and how he possibly keeps it all straight. It seems to me that having a system of sorts to set up or give loose form to a chapter or character would be a logical way to write within, write with guidelines without being overwhelmed. And I chose this question first because I often say this to people, that I do think the mythical astronomy actually does function very much like an outline or a skeleton, and every time there is a key battle scene or a key exchange, he's got this sort of series of core templates, the, the moon and the comet. And he can basically shuffle them around and do it different ways and create scenes out of it. So if you will, I, I compare it to, um, if anybody's ever taken art class, sometimes they'll do an exercise where they make a little squiggly line and they just give you a blank canvas with a squiggly line. And then you're supposed to use that line to start to make a picture, and it's easier than starting with a blank canvas because you got a little bit of shape and form. And I think that that is, in fact, exactly how he uses the mythical astronomy. So that is right on the money, Melanie. Great question. Next question is from David Higgins of Facebook, and he asks, What started the White Walkers walking? This is one of those questions that everybody gets asked. Was it simply a cycle in the stars or a conjunction of planets as opposed to a slight due to a breach of contract because of failure to provide babies as tribute? If so, human institutions keeping watch is seriously impressive. So I have thought about this, and while I was researching my new uh, series, which is going to be called Moons of Ice and Fire, I came up with an answer. And I think the answer is actually Jon Snow's birth. And what we're going to see in Moons of Ice and Fire is that everything at the Tower of Joy basically screams ice moon meteor birth. And as you can guess from the Moons of Ice and Fire series, it's going to revolve around the theory that there were in fact two moons. And, you know, if there were two moons, then there are probably one ice moon and one fire moon because pretty much everything is ice and fire in the story. 
And so the fire moon would be the one that blew up in the ancient past and gave birth to the meteor dragons. And the ice moon would be the one which has not blown up yet, which promises impending disaster and the return of the others. And so if you look at the Tower of Joy, we've got Kingsguard, we've got Jon Snow, and we've got the Sword Dawn. And in the Moons of Ice and Fire series, I'm going to show you how all three of those symbolize either others or ice moon meteors or ice moon affiliated things. And of course, Lyanna is a lunar queen, a moon maiden, as I like to say. However, she's not really associated with fire, but rather blew into roses. So like the Night's Queen with her moon pale skin, Lyanna is what we call an ice moon maiden. And we're going to get into that in a lot more detail, but this is a good preview question. And so uh, I will be giving you eventually my full reasoning as for why I think it was John's birth. Now, I'm not totally like firm on that. It could be something else. But up until now, I didn't really have any answer at all. And so now I'm leaning that way. Let's see. Hasn't Craster been giving babies to the White Walkers before John was conceived? Probably. I'm not sure what the, exactly, what the exact timeline is. Uh, but I think it's pretty close. And personally, I think the White Walkers never truly, totally went away. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there were people like Craster giving babies to the White Walkers going back however long. Um, so that's just my two cents. Let's see, next question. That one guy on Twitter, at Fractalbomb, asks, Eamon's quote, the Sphinx is the riddle, not the Riddler. Valerian Sphinxes are dragons with human heads. And the saying, uh, is, this, is he saying that skin changing is the important unknown? Or is this something more about the breeding and sorcery that results in dragons and Valerian, Valerians, meaning people with the dragon bond? So I'm, I like the theory that the Valerian Sphinx refers to the human head and the dragon body. Basically, it means the, the human has to control and the dragon is the body, very much like a skin changer situation where the warg or the skin changer is the brain of the operation and the animal is the body. But when it says three heads has the dragon, we need a third head. And I've heard a theory that basically there's somebody that has to be sacrificed in order to create the blood of the dragon bond. In fact, uh, one specific theory is that an ancestor of the people who want to be dragon riders, that person is sacrificed to wake the dragon, and then all of their descendants would then have an inherent bond with the dragon. But uh, regardless of the specifics, just like Valyrian steel is probably created through blood magic, I think that the blood of the dragon, whatever magical rituals behind that, probably requires human sacrifice, and so maybe that's the third head. Um, it could have to do with something totally different, the three heads of the dragon... But as far as the Sphinx being the riddle, the idea is that the Sphinx is the riddle for how to make the blood of the dragon. So I like that theory. I'm not totally sold on it. I'm still sort of waiting to see what that turns out to be. I don't think Eamon's quote refers to Sorella, which is Alaris the Sphinx, who is a, uh, one of the sand snakes hiding out in Old Town. Or at least one of Oberyn's children. I'm not sure if she's a sand snake, quote-unquote. But <clears throat> I think it's more deeper going into the Dragon Bond thing, like uh, that one guy is suggesting. So next question comes from Twitter also. 
Sandra M., crazy question of the day. Is it possible that the Amethyst Empress did not die, but is imprisoned in Stigai, the corpse city at the heart of the shadow beyond a shy? Yes, that is possible. Um, in the Weirwood Goddess series, we've been talking about the idea that Nissa Nissa, who I think is also the Amethyst Empress, is imprisoned inside the Weirwood Net, or is a prisoner in some sense. So we don't really know what's at Stigai. There could be Shade of the Evening Trees or Corrupted Weirwoods or something crazy like that. But the, the reason why I like this question is because I do think there is a big, nasty, toxic black meteor sitting at the heart of the Shadowlands in Stigai. That's my best guess for what's there. And of course, a big black moon meteor would be a piece of the Fire Moon, which is a piece of Nissa Nissa in a sense. So in symbolism terms, that is correct. Hey, Meridian Mormont, I see you might have to take off. Or is that Aaron? Oh, it's Aaron taking off. Thanks for dropping by, Aaron, and thanks for the super chat. You are a sweetheart. All right, so next question comes from Melanie Patrick, who is in the chat. Hey, Melanie. One of our Patreon supporters. Do you think the Horn of Jorman could be a device created secretly, perhaps, by Bran the Builder, or Brandon of the Bloody Blade, or Azora High, to use the children's magic against them. It's mentioned at least four times in the text that the Horn of Jorman can wake giants from the earth, which sounds to me like creating giant earthquakes. Yeah, certainly that's a good guess. Some giants of real-world mythology were said to be sleeping deep below the earth's surface. So could the blowing of the horn sever the lands of always winter beyond the wall from the rest of Westeros to prevent the others from marching south? So my theory on the horns is that the horns are one of the ways that we can actually control comets, if you will. So the horns called dragon... Actually, we're talking about the Horn of Jormund. I think that the Dragonbinder horn is either the Horn of Jormund or it's the important horn, if you will. I don't know what the names are about. But the Dragonbinder horn... If comets are dragons, then Dragonbinder might mean Comet Binder. And I've been insisting for a long time that Azor High actually did something to break the moon. It didn't just happen. There was actually a human intervention which somehow caused this moon disaster to happen. And the two methods that I've zeroed in on would be astral projection via the Weirwood. That would be Bran flying, if you will. And I'm going to get into that when we go back to the Weirwood uh, compendium series. And the other way would be with a comet, with the, uh, I'm sorry, with the Dragonbinder horn. So there's some really great quotes about Dragonbinder. Uh, it's described as splitting the air like a sword thrust. And its sound is called a shivering hot scream. And if you remember Nissa Nissa... The thing that actually was said to break the moon was Nissa Nissa's scream. So we're given the idea of a sound that breaks the moon. But the thing is that we're also, it's also implied that the comet breaks the moon. However, the horn that makes the sound, the screaming sound, also splits the air like a sword thrust. So you can see how the Dragonbinder horn is actually referencing the idea of a sword and a sound which can split and break things. So that's kind of my opinion of the horn. I am going to do a full episode on that theory. But uh, to Melanie's question, could it be a way to use the children's magic against them? Yes, absolutely. In fact, what I think this is going to come down to is human green seers using the magic of the weirwoods and the children of the forest 
to do something bad, to do something that the children maybe didn't intend. So the TV show has set up a, a good narrative where the first men are invading, uh, the children of the forest are losing, and so they create the White Walkers in order to fight back. Or in the books, we're told, maybe they caused the hammer of the waters and severed the arm of Dorne as a way of fighting back against the humans. Um, I think it's going to be a little more complex when the truth comes out, because I don't think the children of the forest are the main character. I think humans, if you will, are the main character. And so if there's some sort of original sin that caused the long night or that caused the world to be broken, I really need to put that deed in the hands of a person and not a child of the forest. And since we're given tons of evidence of human green seers, what I'm basically seeing is that Azor High was somebody who got a hold of the green seer magic and then did bad stuff with it. And so when you talk about using the children's magic against them, we're kind of getting close to that territory now where humans are taking that magic and doing things that the children would not wish them to do. Shout out to Ideas of Ice and Fire. I saw you in the chat. What's up there, buddy? What's up, San Rixian, who has been doing some awesome artwork for me lately? You guys will get to see that pretty soon. She did a cool Quetzalcoatl-like dragon thing, which you can... I posted it on Twitter a couple times, at the dragon LML, if you don't follow me on Twitter. So let's go to our next question here. Viserius Sunbreaker from Patreon, who is in the chat. Thanks for dropping by. Do you think Aegon VI, son of Rhaegar and Elia, was actually conceived under a bleeding star? I've scoured the text, and no one but Aemon and Rhaegar seem to mention this comet or meteorite. If it wasn't a comet, what do you think it could have been? And this is such a tiny thing in the text. A lot of you may not be familiar with this. But there's, uh, I think it's Aemon, Targaryen, Maester Aemon, when he's talking about um, Rhaegar sort of reading prophecy and being incorrect, I think it's when he's with Sam and they're sailing to Old Town and he's kind of delirious on the ship. And so basically, Rhaegar saw a comet the night that Aegon was conceived. And so he thought that this is why his son Aegon was the prince who was promised. And if you remember Danny's vision in the House of the Undying, she sees Rhaegar with Elia and their son Aegon. And he's like, oh, he has a song. He's, his is the, he's the prince that was promised. His is the song of ice and fire. We know, obviously, later he became convinced that uh, Aegon VI was not the promised prince and that he needed to obviously have a child with Lyanna. But we are told that he conceived Aegon VI under, you know, there was a comet sighted that night. And I don't really have any idea what that's about other than the fact that Martin is showing us that there's comets that sort of come back around every so often, either from, uh, you know, like a meteor belt or a lot of times actually what happens with Falling stars is that there is a comet, which is has you know an elliptical orbit around the sun, uh, an eccentric orbit. Usually, it's kind of oval shaped. What'll happen is the comet will break up at some point, and it will create a stream of debris. And we have the torrid meteor stream that's like that that we intersect with, and that's where we get the torrid meteor showers twice a year. We're basically passing through the trail of a broken up comet, and there are still big comets in the Torrid Stream, and people are actually becoming increasingly focused on the Torrid Stream as the source of potential, you know, problematic meteorites. So what I think that's happening in Westeros is that we're getting periodic comets. Um, you know, they, it could either be the same comet or it could be a family of debris which is giving us comets. And when we see the comet come back 
in the next book, which is my big prediction, cross your fingers, um, that's, you know, people are going to wonder, well, it was just here three years ago or four years ago. Originally, Martin had the five-year gap, so it would have been like eight years between comet orbits. Um, but I don't think that really matters. I think the comets get summoned whenever they need to get summoned. Uh, maybe it's by the horn or by magic, or maybe they just come. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was a comet, and it was, I guess, kind of a fake out. False alarm. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Rhaegar. This one is from Nisha Patel of Patreon. Oh, we got a comment in the chat here from Monica Lamos. Let's see. We have a ton of stuff where some human marries a female child of the forest or woods witch. Artis Aaron, Sir Clarence Crab, Harlan and Herndon of the Horn. The wife gives them some kind of magic. Yep, that's all true. And those are other hints that I probably could have even included in uh, the Weirwood Goddess series. There's definitely a lot of clues about a powerful first man hero marrying a child of the forest. And obviously, I think those would go back to Nissa Nissa. All right, so Nisha Patel's question. In the Nissa Nissa episode, you talked about the symbolism in the, sword, in the sworn sword scene where the sun rises in the west. Ah, uh, yes, that's when the forest gets set ablaze by Brown or Bennis of the Brown Shield, that scumbag. So, so do you think there's some kind of connection, symbolic or otherwise, between that scene and Mary Mazdor's answer to Danny about when Cal Drogo will be normal again, a.k.a. when the sun rises in the west. Yes, I think the idea of the sun rising in the west refers to Azor High Reborn in Westeros. Um, Azor High Reborn is the sun's sun, the sun of the sun, just as in typical mythology, the morning star is usually the sun of the solar deity. Like, for example, Jesus is called the morning star. God the Father would be the sun. So Jesus is the sun's sun or the second sun. And when he rises, it's like a new sun rising. So in that scene where the woods are burning, Dunk is playing that role of a resurrected hero. And the burning, obviously you guys know the burning tree is where Azor Ahai is reborn from. So when he sees that burning forest and says, it's like a sun was rising in the west, that's exactly what we're talking about. This is Azor Ahai reborn coming back to life from the burning tree. Yes, and it would be also applicable to John when he is resurrected in Westeros. That's true, Alicia. Next, we have Lady Jane of House Celtigar, captain of the dreadship Eclipse Wind. One of my favorite nicknames. She came up with that, by the way. Let's see. Guardian of the Crone's Lanterns. She is our Crone's Lantern patron. Fantastic analysis, as always. Thank you. I always just want to point out that uh, given the symbolism of shadow cats and black meteors and their symbolism as children or offspring then Marjorie giving Tommen black kittens would also fit. That is very correct. And here's the quote. The little queen gave them to him. She only meant to give him one, but he couldn't decide which one he liked the best. Better than cutting them out of the mother with a dagger, I suppose. And that's referring to Joffrey, obviously. Marjorie's clumsy attempts at seduction were so obvious as to be laughable. Tommen is too young for kisses, so she gives him kittens. Cersei rather wished they were not black, though. Black cats brought ill luck, as Rhaegar's little girl had discovered in that very castle. And so that's a reference to Rhaenys's kitten, Balerion. That's the one-eared tom that Arya encounters in A Game of Thrones. So there's an extra association between these black cats and the black dragon archetype, or the black meteors. So Lady Jane is dead-on correct. This scene shows us basically the moon maiden, which is Marjorie giving birth to black meteors. She gives them back to the sun figure. They're basically his children. 
And that's also kind of like the lunar revenge sequence where the moon cracks open, the meteors come down, and those black meteors produce the smoke and ash, which then hides, darkens, and blackens the sun. So very nice catch. Uh, I very easily could have included that in the episode. Then we have, let's see, you mentioned uh, on Quinn's video, that's Quinn of Ideas of Ice and Fire, who's in the chat, on the she, did he happen to mention that the shadow cats are called cat she or cat Sith? This is an amazing thing. And let me just open the link again. This is going to trip you guys out. So cat Sith is a Gaelic term for a fairy creature from Celtic mythology said to resemble a large black cat with a white spot on its chest. Legend has it that the spectral cat haunts the Scottish highlands. The legends surrounding this creature are more common in Scottish folklore, but a few occur, okay, blah, blah, blah. The cat Sith was not a fairy, but a witch that could transform into a cat nine times in some beliefs. Uh, Let's see here. The cat Sith is all black. It's got the white spot. Described as being as large as a dog and chooses to display itself with its back arched and its bristles erect. So check this out. The King of Cats. In the British folktale, The King of Cats, a man comes home to tell his wife and cat, Old Tom, that he saw nine black cats with white spots on their chest carrying a coffin with a crown on it. And one of the cats tells the man to tell Tom Tildrum that Tim Toldrum is dead. The cat then explains, exclaims, what? Old Tim's dead? Then I'm the King of the Cats. Old Tom then climbs up the chimney and is never seen again. Kind of a fun little story, and if you remember, Sirio Forel refers to Rhaenys' black cat Beleriand as the king of the real king of the castle. So there's definitely some, some shout-outs going on here. And then it just the fact that it's also called a cat Sith is obviously really cool for Star Wars fans. So good tip there from Lady Jane. Thank you. Lady Jane, by the way, is one of uh, my frequent contributors. She has all kinds of good stuff. She gets a lot of hat tips. Uh, Let's see here. And another question by her. Given the archetype and its manifestations, then wouldn't what happened to brave Danny Flint and the legends and the description of Mad Donnell Lothston be included as well? The answer is yes. Mad Donnell Lothston herself rode forth in strength from her haunted towers at Harrenhal, clad in black armor that fit her like an iron glove, her long red hair streaming. In this one, she looks a little bit like the House Glover sigil with the metal glove. That's correct. So basically, it looks like Donnell Lawston is showing us the reborn black meteor with the black and red combination. And of course, her red hair is kissed by fire. So this is basically like a black bat burning red. That's a recognizable black meteor sign. And then also... Ah, uh, yes, the Cat Sith is also involved in the uh, Samhain Festival, too. I don't have a real good grip on the Samhain Festival, so, and I didn't do that research ahead of time, but I would encourage you to do a little further research if you want to check that out. The Cat Sith is pretty cool. Uh, in any case, Heron Hall is one of those places that symbolizes the fire moon. Uh, it's black stone. It was burnt by dragon fire, so that's pretty straightforward. And thus we have Mad Donnell riding out with her black glove-fitting iron suit and her flaming red hair. Pretty good. And, of course, brave Danny Flint joined uh, the Night's Watch, just like Arya. She posed as a boy. Uh, that has a very unfortunate end to that story, uh, which uh, basically she was 
raped and murdered, but the the symbolism here is that she was basically posing as a man. And of course, the name Danny in both of these, Danielle, Danielle Lawston and Danny Flint, reminds us of Daenerys Targaryen, who is, of course, a Fire Moon Maiden. And by the way, if you're wondering why I never really talked about Daenerys throughout the whole Weirwood Goddess series, or really the Weirwood Compendium, it's because I'm saving that. Uh, Daenerys has a ton of Weirwood Goddess clues, but it's kind of mind-bending because nobody associates Danny with Weirwoods. And so I'm still trying to figure out how symbolic it is, or whether it's got some literal... Uh, implications, because if you remember, Daenerys does have a fair amount of Blackwood blood flowing through her veins. So it's not impossible that she could have access to Green Seer or Skin Changer magic. But in any case, Danny as the weirdward goddess Nissa Nissa figure is really big. And so I'm going to do uh, probably a whole weirdward goddess episode on her. And that's why I haven't talked about her much. So this next one comes from Archmaester Emma, founder of the Maiden Maesters, one of our Patreon supporters. Thanks once again for another great essay and for the shout-out. I was just wondering if you spotted the Danny as a cat reference at the start of her alchemical wedding. This is Mel speaking to Davos when he's reading the flames in A Storm of Swords. Mel says, any cat may stare into a fire and see red mice at play. But then back at the beginning of the alchemical wedding, it says, tiny flames went darting up the wood like swift red mice, skating over the oil and leaping from branch to bark to leaf. So basically, Danny is staring into the fire. Uh, she is a cat staring into the fire and seeing red mice. So that would make Danny a catwoman. And of course, she is a Nissa Nissa character. So great catch there. Do you think it's possible? that the fan theory about the children of the forest being evil slash the true foe of men could possibly fit with the mythical astronomy that you've picked up so far. And this is another one from Melanie Patrick via Patreon. So I think that the children of the forest, like I was saying earlier, are not the bad guys, quote unquote. I think the closest they come to that is that they are playing the role of the classical nature spirit from mythology and if you know anything about nature spirit mythology, nature spirits can be quite vengeful and mean when you, you know, mess with nature. When you don't have respect for the animals of the environment, nature will get your ass. And that is true even without fairies. Uh, that's just basically true in general. <laughs> so, and we could go off on a global warming tangent, but I think the analogy makes itself. So I don't think the children of the forest are the bad guys. Now, I do think they may have done quote-unquote bad things. They may have killed people, uh, but they would be doing that in defense of nature. And the ultimate original sin, like I said, pretty much has to be something that people did, that, you know, Azor Ahai did. So now I will say that I do think Azor Ahai used Greenseer magic when he screwed everything up. So the children of the forest are definitely involved. Uh, but, and even in, this, even in the show, the show uh, depicts the children of the forest creating the others, but they only did that because they were basically driven to the brink of extinction. So again, it's not just them trying to necessarily fight back, but rather stop the humans from cutting down all the trees. So let's see here. Yeah, so Alicia Kingston, sprites, dryads, nymphs, and fairies aren't cute and cuddly. Yes, that is exactly true. 
Do I think Azor High is the Bloodstone Emperor? Yes, I do. That is my theory. It's in the second Bloodstone Compendium episode. However, I think there is a little bit of wiggle room. You could have a father-son thing because Azor High, first and foremost, is an archetype. It's a type of person. So I don't know if that refers to a priesthood or a line of kings. Uh, so when I say that Azor High was the Bloodstone Emperor or he was the Knight's King, it's also could be true that it's a brother-brother situation or a father-son. I'm mostly concerned with the archetypes. So I usually say he was an Azor High person or something along those lines. Leslie Powell asks, what is the association of the ironwood trees to the houses in the north? In particular, the relation of the ironwood doors in the crypts of Winterfell. Well, iron is associated with protection. And, um, you know, a, a Dunk says, oak and iron guard me well a bunch of times. And a lot of the most important doors are made of oak and iron. And so ironwood probably piggybacks on that kind of symbolism, I would say. But I will say that the entire black wood slash black tree symbol is something I'm still trying to figure out. It encompasses ebony, ironwood, and also shade of the evening trees. I don't think they're all the same, but I do think they are playing into the same symbolism. And I am not entirely finished unraveling that one. So it's pretty easy to see that the shade of the evening trees are very much like the opposite of weirwoods in that, you know, the weirwood paste and the shade of the evening wine is very similar, has similar descriptions, it's psychedelic, and the black and red, uh, the uh, weirwoods are white and red, and the shade of the evening are black and blue. But I don't know what exactly the shade of the evening trees are. Are they corrupted weirwoods? Uh, we know that there's children of the forest in Essos, or at least there used to be. Um, that would be the Ifa Kevron in the northern grasslands, if you're familiar with the world of ice and fire. But we don't really know if there's any weirwoods on Essos. It could be that the shade of the evening trees are their weirwoods or that they're corrupted somehow or something like that. I really hope I can figure that out one day. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort from Patreon. She's also a Patreon of History of Westeros, by the way. Uh, there are several patrons which contribute to both of our shows or to multiple shows, and we are all very grateful for you guys backbone of the community, if you will. So she asks, do you think Euron currently has any sort of connection to the Weirwood Net? So I don't think so, but I'm not sure. I am more open to the idea that he's like a failed Blood Raven pupil. You know, uh, he talks about flying, uh, jumping off a tall tower and flying. And obviously his symbolism is kind of like an alternative color scheme Blood Raven, if you will. He's got the one-eyed sorcerer thing going on. Um, and, of course, his one eye that shows is blue instead of red, which makes us think of the others. Uh, but here's what deal with Euron. Euron is really great for symbolism. I'm going to go into this in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. But basically, think of Euron's map as, or Euron's face as a sky map, okay? So his blinded eye is called his blood eye, and he always has a patch on it. His patch is either black or red, and the blood eye is also called a crow's eye. Crow's eyes uh, are black, and a blood eye would be red. So basically, the blood eye has a ton of black and red symbolism. And you guys are familiar with the black and red symbolism. That's the waves of blood and night. And of course, Euron frequently has the sea of blood symbol with him. Um, he's got... Yeah, why isn't this automatically updating? So basically, what his, his blood eye is showing us the fire moon. It gave birth to the waves of blood and night, 
and it was essentially put out to the effect, to the extent that a moon is an eye, the fire moon eye was blinded. That's part of the God's eye thing. But then his other eye, his smiling eye, if you will, is bright blue. And so that would represent the ice moon, if you will. And so his face is basically showing us the two moons. The blood eye is the fire moon. The smiling eye is the ice moon. And best of all, in the Winds of Winter Aeron chapter, um, he is seeing visions and he sees Euron's face as the moon. So we're directly given the idea that Euron has a moon face. Uh, and basically, because of the two eyes, he's giving us both moons. This is comparable to um, Sir Waymar in the prologue. If you recall, one eye is blinded by one of the shards of his fractured sword, which would be the meteor shower. It's like a thousand needles that the sword turns into, and one sticks him in the eye. But when that happens, that eye goes blind, and the other eye opens up blue. And so again, we're seeing one eye blinded for the fire moon, and then this other blue eye to symbolize the awakening of the others in the ice moon. And, of course, there's a lot more symbolism to that, and I'll spend, like, friggin' an hour explaining it all to you someday here soon, and it'll be really super interesting, like all of my podcasts are. <laughs> all right. Let's see here. Lord Commander Daenerys Flint, once again, of the Night Fort, asks, Since you brought the whole Grey King, Ironborn thing into the Weirwood Compendium, what are your thoughts on them and any possible connection parallels they may have with Grayscale? And any connection both of these things have with the others? Specifically curious about any connections between Grayscale and the others. Okay, so Grayscale is super mysterious. I don't understand it. Um, It seems to be uh, one of those quasi-scientific things that exists in Martin's world, like Sir Gregor's being resurrected. Like, it's kind of magic. It's kind of this Frankenstein, like pseudoscience type thing. It's really hard to say. I don't think Martin intends for us to figure it out. And probably the same thing is true with grayscale. Like grayscale comes from uh, the Valerian dragon lords when they were attacking the Roinar. They basically took out the Roinar and were down to their, uh, their, their main city. They were killing their king and the king, Garen, when he was hung from a cage, he called down a curse on the Valerians. And that night, foul vapors rose up from the river, and a bunch of the Valerians got grayscale. And so that's why the stone men live along the Rhoyne, and they're, you can sort of think about them as ex-dragon lords, at least in symbol. And so the stone men make sense in that, in that terms, because obviously the moon... The dragon fire moon blows up and then we get stones, you know, the meteors. So the stone men would basically be like meteor symbols and they frequently jump into the water. So that would give us the sea dragon symbol. However, they're also associated with cold because when Tyrion, uh, well, let's see, no, it's not Tyrion. It's when they're talking about Patchface and how he might have been saved by the, uh, who's the guy under the water? Somebody help me out. The Shrouded Lord. He, the Shrouded Lord has a kiss as cold as ice, and uh, some people say that he was awakened by a cold kiss. So there's an icy association with the stone men. And so I think you guys are sort of figuring out that the direction I'm going in my research is that the others are going to be some sort of transformed fire people. Uh, a lot of people have locked on to that because they have that cold fire going on inside their eyes. And so I think the stone men might be symbolic of fire turning into ice. 
But I don't really know what Martin is doing with the actual grayscale disease. I really feel like it's going to be important in the next book. I do think it's going to be like an epidemic that, um, you know, sweeps Westeros. But I don't know, like, are the, are the stone men going to have, are they going to be uh, resistant to whiting? Or are they going to be resistant to the cold? So they'll be sort of like my green zombies? Or I, I don't know, maybe that'll just be a plague. I, I kind of feel like there's some thing that we don't know about them. It's like the stone men are going to come in handy, but I just don't know what it is. And I haven't read a good theory about it. So, uh, could the grayscale affect the whites? Like maybe we give the whites grayscale. I don't know. I don't, grayscale spreads slowly and the whites invade really quick. So if anything, it seems more likely that the grayscale could somehow affect the dragons because it was created to kill Valerians, so maybe it will turn the dragons back into stone, but I don't know. I'm just kind of guessing there. I don't have a good answer. Let me check on something real quick. How many we got? Oh, look, 83 people watching. That's more than I thought I would get. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. That is awesome. All right, next question. Let's see if we can get one here in the chat. Mother Roin and the Shrouded Lord being merged in the form of Lady Stoneheart. Lady Stoneheart, one time when she talks, it is called a stream of ice. So even though Lady Stoneheart is animated by fire, her words are kind of icy. So that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure what, what is being said there. A lot of the resurrected characters have the ice and fire duality, so I assume that's what's going on. John Hunkerton asks, do you think the story has symbolic parallels with Greek four elements, especially with the four humors linked to it? Uh, could be. I'd probably need to do more research on that to figure it out. But I am going to talk about the uh, hinges of the world idea. And in, uh, Martin's hinges of the world idea seems to be drawn from something in classical mythology. And the hinges of the world in classical mythology are thought to be the four corners, the four cardinal directions. And they are frequently associated with giving us disasters. So I think it's pretty similar to what Martin's doing with the hinges of the world. Although I don't know if Martin is envisioning four hinges, you know, specifically to represent the, uh, the directions. So far, I think we have the, the wall and a shy as hinges of the world. Somebody the other day suggested that Old Town might be a hinge of the world. And that seems like it could be true. Uh, so we'll have to see what's going on with that. And as far as connections between Grayscale and the others, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to probably let that one go. See, that one guy at Fractal Bomb on Twitter, another question, is Dragonsteel Valerian Steel, or is Dawn the only true Dragonsteel because the term Dragonsteel is referring to meteors? Well, that's another good question to preview Moons of Ice and Fire. Uh, Dawn... So a lot of people think that Dawn could be the last hero's Dragonsteel. It seems like an obvious possibility. Uh, I think it's very possibly true. I don't think it either is or isn't true. I just think it's a really good chance of being true. And obviously, if that's the case, then the dragon in Dragonsteel would be referring to the fact that Dawn is a meteor. Uh, and since Dawn is a white meteor, and in my opinion, associated with ice, it could actually be an ice dragon meteor and thus ice dragon steel. But I will explain that more in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. So in short... Yes, Dawn could be Dragonsteel, but I'm not sold on that uh, because the Night's Watch, all of their symbolism is of the black swords. So, for example, the Night's Watch are black brothers, 
and they're associated with black shadows. However, they um, call themselves swords in the darkness. And if they're swords, they would be black swords. And what kind of weapons do they use? They use black obsidian knives against the others. And when John dreams of his sword burning red, he calls it Longclaw, which means that that is a black sword burning red. So I tend to think that the Night's Watch should have black swords in general. But who knows? Maybe the Night's Watch has obsidian, and then the one leading the Night's Watch has the white sword. Um, I kind of like the idea that uh, Dawn is actually the original Ice of House Stark, but that it belonged to the Night's King and not the last hero. So we'll have to see. we got some thoughts on this in the chat. Dragonstone has been described as having a smoking mountain. Could that be a volcano? Yes. Patchface seeing men go into the sea is actually a tsunami. Could there be a doom of Westeros? Ah, yes. So all the Fire Moon, that's a great question, game of theories with Marie. So all of the Fire Moon analogs uh, have an implied disaster. For example, Ashai is blown up, and it used to be a home of dragons. Valeria, another place, blown up, used to be the home of dragons. The dragon pit in King's Landing used to be a home of dragons. It got blown up. So now we have Dragonstone. Dragonstone hasn't been blown up. However, it has been burned by dragonfire. In order to make the fused stone, it had to be burned with dragonfire. So perhaps that's enough to make the symbolism happen. But really, Dragonstone, if it erupted and exploded, that would make it a good analog for the fire moon. So I definitely think that that could happen. Um, it could happen on its own. More likely, it would happen as a fallout to the impending meteor impact that I suspect is coming. So we could have some crazy multi-stage disaster where the meteor comes and the wall falls and there's earthquakes and dragonstone. And there's also sort of the implication that maybe the giant's lance will give us an avalanche. I don't know how far Martin's going to take all of that. Um, In fact, one of the things I'm really looking forward to in the last two books is to see how Martin handles the apparent increase in magic that's coming. He's done really well creating a fantasy series that almost doesn't feel like a fantasy series so far by hiding the magic, keeping it on the margins, and always focusing on the characters. And he'll he'll still continue to focus on all the characters, but I really do wonder how he's going to handle the increasing magic, whether it's a moon meteor or just the fall of the long night or what have you. So we'll see. I hope to write a book one day and I've learned a lot from George Martin and I plan on learning a lot from how he ends this thing. So (laughs) we'll see here. All right. Alicia Kingston asks, Dragonstone could be protected by fire magic like Storm's End protected against the storms. What do you mean protected by fire magic like protected against the others? That could be. I'm not a fan of the others crossing water though. um, Just because that seems like a little bit of a shortcut around the wall, but who knows? Let's see, here's a question from Akira C. Why does A Song of Ice and Fire uh, mimic so much of our world history? Yitias, China, Sothoriosos, Africa, Zoroastrianism, Dothraki, Mongols, Valerian Steel, Damascus Steel. So this is basically, you'd have to ask George why, but there's no question that he's doing it. And I would say that it's one of the most impressive things about A Song of Ice and Fire is the way that he's combined so many different influences. I mean, I talk about, you know, a lot of classical mythology 
but there's also, and you could analyze the Song of Ice and Fire through the War of the Roses lens and just look at the War of the Roses influences on the story. You can analyze the whole thing through Norse mythology, which many people have already done. Um, you can analyze the whole thing through Arthurian mythology. There's actually a great theory showing a ton of influences from very old uh, Marvel comics from the 60s and 70s that covers basically like the whole book and almost every character. So the skill that Martin has is the ability to weave all these influences together. Um, and I don't know, I mean, why is he doing it? I have to think it's kind of a time capsule. It's like he's giving homage, homage, I should say. I always mispronounce that one. He's giving homage to all of his uh, inspirations. He's sort of keeping the old stories and symbols alive. I think he sees himself as uh, carrying on a tradition, passing on a symbolic language to everyone. And so I think that's why he incorporates so many different inspirations. But part of it's probably just to be clever and because it's fun and he gets a kick out of hiding references to the Giants and the Patriots or it's a Batman, you know, Kermit the Frog. I mean, it's kind of, some of them are Easter eggs, but I think, I think it's... Uh, yeah, so Monica Lamo says it's a fairy tale meant as social commentary and to provide correction. Yes, I agree with that. Um, so someone says, I'd love to see an analysis of the series through a Chinese history lens. So many kingdoms again and again. Um, I don't know if you've checked out my Tyrion Targaryen episode. That's Bloodstone Compendium number five. But I talk a lot about Sun Wukong uh, from Journey to the West, which is... Uh, what am I trying to say? Chinese folklore. And that is, um, hev- it's a, that's where all the monkey demon references from Tyrion come from. And so it's more than just Yi Ti and the Maiden Maid of Light. And by the way, the Maiden Maid of Light is uh, Amaterasu, who's a Japanese sun goddess. Um, but uh, yeah, so Journey to the West is, is pretty heavily involved in Tyrion's uh, plot and it is even a white dragon at the end of that one. So check out the Tyrion Targaryen episode for that. Let me get a drink real quick, guys. Oh, there's a good question from Fishy B. What do you think the Summer Islands are <clears throat> in real world context? In the World of Ice and Fire, it tells us that the Summer Islanders are a very old civilization. They probably go back to the Dawn Age and they have vague memories of trying to colonize Sothorios, which obviously failed. Now, I think that what actually happened is that the Summer Islanders come from Sothorios because uh, Sothorios is very much uh, an analog for Africa. Specifically, George has created it as an analog to the dark continent view of Africa that the British imperialists and colonialists had, where they were basically terrified of Africa and all the natives, and they didn't understand anything, and they just thought of it as this primitive, savage, and evil place. I feel like George is sort of taking that view of Africa and and running with it for Sothorios, and it's literally full of monsters, okay? But he's also hinting at the real Africa by showing us the Summer Islanders. I believe what happened is that they were, they, they come from Sothorios, you know, they're black people. They come from the Africa analog in the story. But when Sothorios became overrun with monsters, perhaps they're like the Bloodstone Emperor's genetic experiments gone wrong or something, or who knows, they had to flee Sothorios and come to the Summer Islands. And so essentially, the tale that we have is backwards. And it's not the Summer Islanders trying to make um, a colony on Sothorios, but rather the other way around. They have dim memory of Sothorios 
some sort of interaction with him. But like I said, I think it goes the other way around. Uh, yes, Sanrixian mentions Viserys as cream and gold, and then there's a white dragon. Okay, so you're referring to the Tyrion preview chapter from the Winds of Winter. He's playing chess. He knocks over the white dragons, or not chess, I always say chess, Sivas. He's playing Sivas, and he drops the white dragon. It gets covered in blood, and he picks it up. And I definitely think this is foreshadowing about Tyrion and Viserion in some way. Will he ride Viserion? That'd be great. Maybe it'll be something else. Um, and then, like I mentioned, at the end of Journey to the West, there is a white dragon also. So I think that's all, yes, it's all something. So yeah, Alicia Kingston says, Escape of the Island of Dr. Moreau. That's exactly what I'm talking about. All right, so could the Mountains of the Morn and the Mountains of the Moon be the two lamps or hinges in Tolkien and the fact that it went dark and a shy be why the seasons are out of whack? I'm a little foggy on the two lamps thing, and that's from the Silmarillion. I'd have to ask Blue Tiger. He's my uh, Tolkien expert about that one. I do think the Mountains of the Morn and the Mountains of the Moon are sort of parallel symbols because the Eerie is an ice moon symbol and Ashai is a fire moon symbol. But I don't think there's really a direct connection. I mean, ostensibly, the Mountains of the Morn are called that because they're to the east of Ashai, and so you'd see the sun rising over the mountains every morning. Um, I know that when uh, Danny sees the dragons, not Danny, when Bran sees dragons in his coma dream vision, he sees the dragons stirring beneath the sunrise in a shy. So there's sort of another implication of morning going on over there. But it's like a dark morning or black morning or black dawn. So I think it's basically there to imply the dark, the dark day, dark uh, sunrise kind of symbolism. All right, next question. I'm going to go back to my ones that people sent in. Daenerys Flint of the Night Fort again. Do you think there is any connection between Green Seers and Moon Singers? No, not directly. Uh, but symbolically, kind of yes. Because when you think of something singing to the moon, what do you think of? You think of the wolves howling to the moon. And in A Game of Thrones, they're actually their howling is referred to as singing. So the wolves are moon singers for all intents and purposes. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what exactly the symbolism is there, but I will tell you that we're going to talk about the temple of the moon singers in the very first Moons of Ice and Fire episode, which will be coming out in a couple weeks, because the temple of the moon singers has milk glass, moon phase windows, ah, and a snowy white dome. So there's a lot of good symbolism going on there. Thanks for dropping by, Meridian. Really appreciate it. David Higgins from Facebook. He gave me three, like, super deep, thought-provoking questions. I appreciate that, David. Uh, let's see. What books must GRM have read to have done mythical astronomy at this level? And I wrote these down because I don't have these off the top of my head. But first of all, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is full of mythical astronomy. In fact, I could probably do at least 10 episodes on Lord of the Rings mythical astronomy. So, yeah, that's one. In fact, I think that's where Martin got a lot of his ideas. There's, there's a pair of star swords. There's white trees that are very like the weirwoods. There's all kinds of great stuff. I can't even go into it. Um, so that's one book that he read, The Golden Bough by Sir James George Fraser. Uh, that one has a lot of the green man symbolism. And then we've got Sir, uh, so we've got Hamlet's Mill by Giorgio di Santillana and Hertha von Deschen. That's my favorite book 
of comparative mythology, I highly recommend that to everybody. Hamlet's Mill is awesome. It will explain a lot of what I'm doing if you read that. And in, in particular, they focus on the universal mythological archetype, archetype of the world tree or the navel stone of the world, which rever- refers to the celestial axis. It's a very important mythological concept, which appears all over the place. We've got Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock. Probably a lot of you have read or at least heard of that one. It came out in 94 when George was writing Game of Thrones. There are some chapter titles uh, that look like they could be ripped right out of mythical astronomy of ice and fire, to be honest. Uh, A lot of good stuff in there. And of course, Graham Hancock is a huge influence on me, so I'd recommend that book. The White Goddess by Robert Graves. That's uh, more European uh, sort of green man folklore. And uh, that's another good one for everyone to read for just basic mythological background. I put Journey to the West on here by Wu Chang An, and we already mentioned that. That is like a 400-year-old Chinese folktale. It's actually a TV show, too. Um, And then, of course, Joseph Campbell. I couldn't even pick one book, but Joseph Campbell's view of mythology is very much in line with my view of mythology and what I think George's view is. Um, You know, everyone's familiar with The Hero's Journey, But Joseph Campbell talks a lot about the function of mythology in culture, how it serves as a kind of a history and a cosmology. And I actually talked about that in one of my episodes called George Martin is Writing Modern Mythology. And if you want to read that one, it's under the methodology tab at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. Basically, it's like a 45-minute essay all about Joseph Campbell's influence on A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think that's actually one of the most important things I've read or written. So check that out. All right, so that is the rest of my prepared questions. Let's go to the chat and see what we've got floating around. What is the possibility that the children of the forest inhabit all of Planetos? I assume you mean inhabited. I mentioned earlier that the Ifakevron sound just like children of the forest and they either live or used to live in the woods to the north of the Dothraki Sea. So yes, children of the forest were not confined to Westeros, and if they were in the Dothraki Sea, then they were probably all over the whole world. That's the most logical thing. We also have a lot of stories about giants in Essos. I think it's implied that children of the forest or perhaps other kind of elf creatures um, have lived all over the place. In fact, there's... uh, something called the Old Ones on the Isle of Lang that are, have got my attention. Isle of Lang has a lot of skin changer clues. The, uh, it's got the God Empress who's associated with tigers, tiger skins. And the Lengi, the native Lengi people have glowing golden eyes, just like the children of the forest. And they're supposed to be able to see in the dark. Um, however, they are like eight feet tall, whereas the children are like four feet tall. So I almost wonder if like there's other races of elf people out there, and I'm actually going to do a tinfoil on the old ones theory at some point. So, do you think some of the nature spirits were inspired by Native American myths? Yes, I do. Um, And in fact, Native American mythology has a ton of great uh, mythical astronomy and comet symbolism as well. And I've talked about some of that. There's also some Mesoamerican mythological ideas in there as well. For example, obsidian was used as a magic mirror for wizards uh, of the Aztecs and the Mayans and other Mesoamerican cultures, and it was basically called a dark mirror, and they would perform all kinds of magic with these obsidian mirrors, and I think that is being referenced by Martin with the Black Pond 
in front of the weirwood tree because the weirwood tree, when Bran has his coma vision, the weirwood tree is gazing at its own reflection in the black pond, almost like a sorcerer working sorcery. So I think that is going on in there. Let me grab a drink real quick. Hey, Matt Stoyles, thanks for coming by. If you joined late, have no fear. You can, this will be available on YouTube after it is done. At least it will be if I didn't screw anything up. I think it will be. (laughs) It's my first time doing this. I don't know. So uh, here's a really good comment. Sometimes I like some of the critical comments because they bring up issues that I've forgotten to talk about. So Christian says, I'm just not sure how much significance we can put in the world east of Karth. Martin said he only added that because of the Maps of Ice and Fire book. Okay, that's a great question. So basically what I think Martin is doing is he's got an idea. And because this story is fractal, Martin could make as many new lands as he wanted. And he would just keep repeating the same basic schema of symbolism. You know, you'd have stuff that tells us about Azor High and about Green Men and Nissa Nissa anywhere you go. And in fact, um, I've gone, I've, I've avoided some of the more like tertiary myths. Like I haven't talked about the Sarnori um, or the, uh, the Queen of the, oh God, Silver Lake or whatever it's called that came before the, uh, the Sarnori. And all of those little tales have this clues about the mythical astronomy. So essentially, I think that you know, I talk a lot about the Great Empire of the Dawn, and the Great Empire of the Dawn is a nicely fleshed out story in the world of Ice and Fire. But basically, I think that George Martin has always been thinking about ancient Valerians, the ancestors of the Valerians that came from Ashai. Because if you look at Game of Thrones, it talks about Ashai a lot, and it gives us a lot of clues about dragons coming. Uh, the Fisher Queens of the Silver, Lake, Silver Sea. Thank you, Monica. I was dying. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> Let's see, where was it? Oh, yes. So essentially, Martin has always been thinking about proto-Valerians. He's been talking about dragons coming from Ashai since book one, and I think that he's always been planning on giving us some sort of ancestor race of the Valerians that's also an ancestor of the Danes, because the purple-eyed Dane stuff and all of its lightbringer, sort of the morning symbolism, is there right from the beginning. So I think he always had a plan to flesh that out, and it only wasn't until the world of Ice and Fire and the maps of Ice and Fire that he got down to basically filling in the details. But the broad strokes have always been in his mind, in my opinion. So that would be my answer for that one. I need more Snapple. Yeah, Snapple only goes so far. I kind of need a throat lozenge right now, but since I'm talking the whole time, I don't want to clank it around in my mouth. So let's see here. If the Bloodstone Emperor is Azor High, who is Hercoon the hero? He's Azor High too. Everyone's Azor High. Haven't you figured that out by now? <laughs> Every single person is Azor High. No, I'm I'm kidding. Of course, most people are only symbolizing the archetype. Um, so the Hercoon the hero, basically, what I think we're being told is the reason why we're given Hercoon the hero, Nefarion, Eldric Shadow Chaser, Azor High, and Yintar as five different names for the flaming sword hero from the east is because George wants to clue us into this idea, this mythological phenomenon, that uh, one person can have different names in multiple places. So we don't need to know who Hercoon the hero is. It's just another local name for Azor High. And the big clue about that is that Azor High might have a different local name in Westeros. 
It might be Brandon of the Bloody Blade or The Last Hero or Garth the Green or, you know, uh, Eldrick Shadow Chaser sounds like kind of a Westerosi name. So I think that's the point of giving us those names. But again, Bloodstone Emperor could be the father and maybe Azor High is the son. Uh, you know, it's, we're talking about archetypes and there's a lot of father-son drama in the story and we all know this whole thing has like echoes and parallels everywhere. So, so uh, Fishy B says, the Dawn Empire reminds me of the late 19th century Aryan race theory, though I doubt it was intentional for obvious reasons. No, I actually do think Martin is playing with like pseudoscientific ideas from the past, like Atlantis. Um, and I mean, it's probably not a coincidence that the Valerians believe that they're genetically superior from everyone. Aryan Valerian. Now, I definitely think that he's riffing on that a little bit. I don't think he shies away from those kinds of ideas. I think he dives into them. So I would say that probably is intentional. Uh, Let's see here. Yeah, uh, Melanie Patrick says, I like the idea of characters collecting names as they travel. So Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire has said many times that he sees Danny as kind of like the modern mythological hero. She's traveling the world and creating these myths that a few hundred years from now, they'll all sound a little different. Like the Marinese uh, myth of the Dragon Lord will be different from the Westerosi myth. Or if she comes through... Um, Volantis. If she comes through and uh, frees the slaves in Volantis, they'll have a different story about her. So, yeah. Ashai, capital city of the Great Empire of the Dawn, Alicia asks. Yeah, that was the comment I was looking for. Yes, absolutely. Um, And I would recommend watching the Ashai and Great Empire of the Dawn YouTube videos that I did with History of Westeros. Those are on my YouTube channel and they're on History of Westeros YouTube channel. We break down all of the Great Empire of the Dawn ideas, which I am encouraged to see that a lot of people are coming around to now. Two and a half years ago when I started talking about the Great Empire of the Dawn, it felt like tinfoil. But uh, seems like a lot of people have sniffed it out now, so I hope we'll hear more about them in the future. Will the series end with an epilogue set directly before the next last night? I'm not sure what you're asking there, Fishy B. I think it's possible that we'll see, like, the epilogue could be, like, the long night ending or maybe the first scene of people sort of, like, reestablishing themselves after the long night. But, uh, okay, you meant the long night. That's what I thought. Um, it's possible that the last thing we'll see is, like, the clouds starting to part. It could be that Martin doesn't want to take the story past that and, like, do the whole, like, the elves go back to, uh, you know, Hobbiton, you know, type of thing. Like, especially in the movie, I thought that was kind of lame. Like, the climax of the movie happened, and then, like, 45 minutes later, you're watching Frodo and Bilbo say goodbye. So I don't, <clears throat> I don't think he's, uh, <laughs> I don't think he's going to take it that far back. But, uh, okay, so Viserys Sunbreaker asks, do you think Euron will actually kill any manifestations of a god, e.g. a kraken or a Cthulhu-type creature? He's already collecting a lot of god figures. So I do kind of have hopes for a Kraken. Um, you know, I like the idea that he's going to summon it with all the blood that he's pouring into the ocean. I think that would be sick. Um, but I think Euron is basically killing the gods more in the sense that he's trying to become a new god. Uh, and one thing I will point out about that vision uh, where he's sitting on the Iron Throne and the corpses of all the gods are hung on his Iron Throne, the one thing we don't see is the old gods, Uh, except for that in the background there's a burning forest. 
And of course, we now know that burning trees symbolize weirwoods. And so actually, weirwoods are in that vision too. But of course, um, I think, and again, I'm going to talk about this more in the Moons of Ice and Fire series, but Euron is basically like a Bloodstone Emperor figure, but he's kind of an icy version, just like Jon Snow is like an icy version of Azor High Reborn. So there's a bit of ice and fire unity going on there, and he's also got Bloodstone Emperor echoes. So I think in the books, Euron's going to do some really big stuff, actually. And I've got my eye on that horn. I told you guys earlier, I think that horn might be really, really important. Um, <clears throat> oh, another thing about the horn, the horn of Jorman, um, that's very similar to Jormungand or Jormungandr, the Norse uh, serpent that circles the world that Danny is largely based on. So that dragon horn has a lot, I mean, it's, it's tied to snakes and dragons and the end of the world and the Ouroboros and all kinds of stuff. So I'm really fascinated by it. Okay, Matt Stoyles, you came late. So let me get your question here. What are your thoughts on the possibility of Craster being the son of Bloodraven? I'm not sure if you talked about this earlier on the stream. No, I did not. Or if you're waiting for the others, Moons of Ice and Fire pod. I am going to mention this idea in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. And I've talked about it on somebody else's live stream. It's not my idea. It's somebody else's theory. And actually the theory is that Craster could be Maester Aemon's son. Uh, that seems to be a little more likely than Bloodraven. But what we know about Craster is that he was... His father was a crow who flew down from the wall and basically had sex with a woman at White Tree Village and then left her. And when she came back to the wall with her son, they basically shoot her away. So Craster's father was a Night's Watchman. And it's kind of one of those things where, like, well, do you think George has an answer to that? Is it just some Night's Watchman or does he have a specific one in mind? Probably he has a specific one in mind because he loves leaving these little mysteries for us. Um, and if he's either Aemon or Bloodraven's son, that would make Craster a Blood of the Dragon person. And the reason why I really like this idea is because I think the Night's King was Azor High, or he was an Azor High person, meaning he was a Fire Dragon person. He was a Blood of the Dragon person. And it was that Blood of the Dragon seed being given to the cold womb, if you will, of the Night's Queen that gave us the others, which are like burning cold. They're cold burning stars, cold fire, et cetera, et cetera. And so the pattern holds very well if Craster has dragon blood and then he's making others with his Night's Queen women. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a great theory. And I'm really looking forward to seeing if it's true. Monica Lamos, who, by the way, is Lady Jane of House Celtigar, says, no question, thank you for all your analysis and sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks, Lady Jane. That is very kind of you. I love doing this, and basically, you guys sending me money via Patreon just enables me to do it because uh, I'm not a rich man, and I have to pay the bills. My wife works really hard. I don't have, like, some swanky Silicon Valley job, so... When you guys are sending me Patreon dollars, you're basically enabling me to spend time doing all this stuff. And uh, you're basically enabling me. I would do this for free if I could. Um, but of course, my wife would probably kill me if I wasn't making any money and spending all these hours. You guys have no idea how much time I spend on this. So um, <clears throat> yeah, thanks very much, guys. It really means a lot. Yeah, um, so the, I see a comment about Euron in the show. Euron definitely is like one of the most watered down. I mean, it's not even the same character 
basically they they kept the crazy pirate character and and ditched the rest. Now I will say that once you come to terms with the fact that Show Euron is not Book Euron, I do like Show Euron. I like the actor. I like his sort of kind of like unsteady off kilter thing that he's doing. And I thought that the scene where he was uh, raiding the boats, Asha's boats in the second episode of the season was awesome. It really captured the terror of a pirate attack, which uh, looks pretty terrifying, by the way. I've never been in a pirate attack, but I think I would be scared out of my mind. And I thought that uh, Euron was really great, or Pillow Aspect was great in that scene. Let's see what else we got. Would I recommend making it a Song of Ice and Fire YouTube channel? Yeah, I mean, if you feel it, yeah, definitely. You should do anything that you feel inspired to do in life. Um, I don't, I can't really tell you about how it's going to go. Like, I did my podcast first, and that got pretty popular before I even made a YouTube channel. So I've got more podcast subscribers and more Patreon subscribers than I do, more Patreon support than I get from YouTube. Whereas other people have 50,000 YouTube subscribers and a small Patreon. So, I mean, it's whatever works for you. But if you've got ideas, Fishy B, then you should make a channel or a blog or something. Um, YouTube channel is a little more work. You might start with a blog, but. What's my day job, LML? Oh, I don't want to say that. It's way too boring. You guys don't want to know. My background is generally sales and uh, design of various kinds. Oh, actually, I'll tell you my interesting daytime job. I work for a small company that makes guitar pedals called Brimstone Audio. And you can go to brimstoneaudio.com. No, I'm not a CIA agent. I'm not nearly smart enough for that. But uh, if you go to brimstoneaudio.com, you can see fun guitar pedals that have way too many knobs on them. And the theme, <laughs> you might be wondering, okay, so this guy calls himself Lucifer and he's got a, another company called Brimstone. Uh, totally a coincidence. We came up with the Brimstone name before uh, I ever did this blog. So what can I say? But if you're a musician, definitely check out my pedals because they're pretty crazy. Uh, let's see here. Yes, if you play guitar, check it out. It's pretty fun. And in fact, if you look at the instructional video, you'll recognize my voice. All right, here's a question. What do you think of the moon being used as a communication mirror for glass candles? Oh, like a Wi-Fi extender. Have you noticed the characters getting dreams, losing time, are moon or sun characters? No, I haven't lo- uh, noticed anything like that. I, I do think of the Winterfell wedding with Ramsay and Jane Poole, where the moon is like an eye watching through a veil. And I think Bran's presence is pretty heavy in that chapter. He, that's the one where he whispers to Theon through the weirwood tree. So there's a little bit of an idea that maybe that, that eye represents Bran in some symbolic way. I don't know if Greenseers can literally look out of the moon or if the moon is being used as a mirror for glass candles. However, it's not totally crazy because I do think the moons of ice and fire are magical. Just like the comets are magical and meteors are magical and volcanoes are magical, and dragonglass is magical, and the trees are magical. I think the moons would probably be magical. And this means that they might be sources of power that can be tapped into. And what did, Azor- what did Azor Ahai do to claim the fire of the gods? He brought the moon meteors down to Earth. And those black meteors seem to have magic power. So, yeah, there's something going on there. Um, I don't know if Martin's thinking of literally joining the glass candles into the moon network. That's probably a little too sci-fi, but symbolically, that's I can see why you're barking up that tree there. 
All right, let's see. What do you think the huge burned slash dead weirwood tree in Raven Tree Hall means? Attempts of black green seer magic. Okay, so um, remember I was talking about all the different kinds of black wood, whether it be shade of the evening or ebony trees or the uh, ironwoods, and I sort of lumped them together under a black wood symbol. Well, obviously that has something to do with house black wood, and the fact that their tree is dying is interesting to me. Now, when weirwood trees die, they don't turn black. They don't turn into shade of the evening trees. I, I'm not saying that. However, you've got a house called Blackwood, and they have a dead weirwood. So that makes me wonder if the black trees represent, like, corrupted weirwoods in some sense. <clears throat> um, and other than that, I think uh, there's a lot of... If you look at the description of Hoster Blackwood... Uh, or no, is it Hoster, the, the Lord of Blackwood? I, no, Hoster is the son. Lord Blackwood is... Somebody let me know in the chat. But in any case, if you look up the description of Lord Blackwood, I think it's in A Feast for Crows or Storm of Swords, he sounds just like Blood Raven. He's got the same coloring. Uh, a lot of the same words are used to describe him as Blood Raven. And so, obviously, Blood Raven is a Blackwood. So I think there's a continuous... Uh, Titus, thank you. Thank you, Aziz. I knew Aziz would have the answer. Titus Blackwood. So essentially, I think there is um, a, li a line of common symbolism running through Blood Raven and the Blackwoods. And I am going to talk about that in the future. Um, oh, here's a good one. So the rumor is that the Brackens poisoned the Blackwood Weirwood tree. Now, the, Blacken, the Bracken sigil is a black horse on orange. And in particular... Bittersteel's sigil is like a fire-breathing dragon horse, okay? So the sigil of the, black, or the Brackens is, is the meteor, the fire-breathing horse dragon, and it poisoned the tree. That's the same symbolism as the thunderbolt setting the tree on fire in the Grey King myth. We've got meteors striking trees. If you look at uh, Dunk's sigil with the shooting star and the tree, that's the same sigil, a shooting star striking a tree, setting it on fire and creating the, uh, the fire of the gods. And of course, Dunk's other sigil is the hanged man, the gallows knight, which alludes to Odin, again, receiving the fire of the gods on Yggdrasil. So the whole idea of the brackens poisoning the blackwood tree is just another version of the meteor setting the tree on fire. Uh, what do you think Karth's ultimate role will be? Why are they the ones that remember the second moon in all of Planetos? So I think lots of people remember the second moon disaster. They're just the only one that explicitly call it a second moon. Um, Helen O'Grady, I love you too. Uh, let's see. But I think the main role of Karth is that Karth is the strongest connection to the great empire of the dawn that we have in the books. So basically, I think Karth is preserving this last little seed, like a direct link to the great empire of the dawn. If you look at the map, Karth is right, it's on the Jade Sea. Um, it's really close to Yi-Ti, which would have been the great empire of the dawn. And then in Karth, you find tons of symbolism that alludes to the gemstone emperors. Um, it's too much to even talk about. I am going to go into that in a future Weirwood Compendium episode. Uh, but uh, let's see here, just to throw you an example Okay, so you remember when Danny's going through the House of the Undying, the second to last chamber that she gets to. Um, <laughs> oh, Jinx Lierre is mad that I said I work <laughs> mad at the CIA comment. No, it's just a joke. Your secrets are safe with me. So in Karth, 
we have uh, that vision. So the second to last vision, before Danny sees the like blue shadow undying, the real undying, she's almost lured into this grand throne room. It has all these magnificent people. They have amazing armor studded with gemstones. And they have, um, I forget the rest of it, but basically they're just the fantasy version of what the gemstone kings might look like. And I think that what the Carthine are doing is they were presenting themselves to Danny uh, in the guise of their best memory of the gemstone emperors. They're trying to appear to Danny as her ancestors. And if you remember, they said, oh, you know, we have foreseen your coming for a long time. We sent the comet to show you the way. We can teach you the speech of dragonkind. So essentially they're posing as Danny's ancestors. And it's basically like an incomplete memory of the gemstone emperors. Um, and so that's what I think what Karth is. It's basically like uh, a little remnant. And also you, you, there's the, they have the, um, the Tourmaline Brotherhood in Karth. And of course, Tourmaline is one of the gemstone emperors. So my favorite little crack, one of my crackpots is that the Tourmaline Emperor uh, founded, you know, some sort of cult or mystery school. And some of those people came to Karth and set up shop in Karth as the Tourmaline Brotherhood. And they're basically just echoing the wisdom of the Tourmaline Emperor. So maybe that's true. Maybe not. Let's see what else we got here. Oh, did we get over 100? Look at that. 100 watching exactly. Thanks, everyone. I'm going to call that a smashing success for my first live stream. And just so you guys know, uh, my plan is to do these live streams once a month in between uh, every episode, like a couple weeks after I come out with a new podcast. That way we can... Uh, <laughs> oh boy, the secret agent jokes are flying. Okay, um, well, you guys have fun with that. Uh, Russia did it, by the way. What was I saying? I just erased my own thought with that joke. Let's take some more questions here. Oh yeah, so what I was going to say is uh, we're going to be doing these Q&As once a month in between the episodes, so it'll become a regular thing. I'll probably move it to Saturday, and I'm going to make it a little earlier in the day because I thoughtlessly scheduled this at a time when European people cannot uh, really watch. It's like four in the morning in most of Europe. So next time I'm going to try to do it earlier so our European folks can participate because I do have a lot of, well, I would say the Song of Ice and Fire fandom is international. It's nothing particular to me. So look, look for these... Um, no, I did not promise to dance at 100 Aziz. I do not dance. If I think of something humiliating to do, uh, it will not be dancing. Let's see here. Um, but uh, So yeah, look for these live casts once a month, probably on Saturday, like I said, uh, where we'll be, you know, so just get used to the idea. As soon as you listen to the episode, go ahead and just start posting questions on YouTube or on WordPress, and I'll be collecting them for these Q&As. We'll make it a regular thing. Emma Smith says she's set an alarm to wake up. Now that is dedication. Thank you, Emma. I appreciate that. I'll try to make it a little easier on you next time, though. Let's see here. All right, guys. I think I'm going to go ahead and call it. Uh, but thanks for coming, and thanks for all the great questions. I hope to eventually get popular enough to get trolls in my chat. We didn't have any trolls today. So uh, I guess I'm a little bit sort of half pleased, half disappointed with that. But uh, thanks, everyone. And if you're just dropped in, you don't know where to find me, luciformeanslightbringer.com, of course. Uh, if you have not subscribed to my YouTube channel, 
punch in Lucifer Means Lightbringer in the YouTube search and you will find it. Please subscribe and then you will know when I'm doing another one of these. And please, everybody, if you could, if you want to do me one favor, share my LML TV video. That's the, the one like video that I have with me talking and gesticulating wildly. Uh, that's the half hour LML TV episode. It's got my, basically it's me boiling down my theory into the simplest version that I can so that people don't have to listen to like a super nerdy two hour podcast just to see if they like what I'm doing. So if everyone could share that video with literally everybody you know that watches the show, everybody that's into Game of Thrones in any way, I think can get something out of the video. Because as you guys know, I'm the reason why I do this is not just for the fun of it. And it's definitely not just to make money. I'm doing this because I think that the symbolism in A Song of Ice and Fire is super important. And I think the concept of symbolic art is super important. I think the reason why George Martin is including all of the symbolism and metaphor, both from the external mythology and the own stuff that he's creating, is because symbolic art is a part of human tradition. And in the past, symbolism and metaphor has mostly existed inside the context of religion. Uh, but as we move into the future, increasingly, you know, fewer and fewer people are religious. And the people that are religious are not religious in the classic way as, uh, as they have been. So people look for symbolism and myth in different forms. And so Star Wars, for example, is a great example of modern mythology. A Song of Ice and Fire is absolutely modern mythology. And so the reason why I do this podcast is because people who are enjoying just the surface story of Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire are missing out on a lot of what's going on. And I do this podcast in order to clue people into this, to get them talking about it. I don't really care if I get every single theory correct. You know, I just want to start the conversation about symbolism and metaphor and archetype. And I feel like this whole enterprise has been more successful than I imagined when I started out. But uh, at the same time, the Song of Ice and Fire fandom is huge. A lot of these YouTube channels have 50 and 100,000 subscribers. Some of these videos are viewed more than 100,000 times. I really think that my first video should be viewed that many times. And again, it's not because I'm great, but just because the concept of mythical astronomy is so interesting. So please help me make this thing go viral. Share my main video with as many people as you can. And with that, I will say see you later. Look forward for the Moons of Ice and Fire episode coming soon. I've already recorded it. I've just got to do the editing. So probably a week to two weeks. And you'll have Moons in Ice and Fire 1, Dawn of the Others. And we're going to talk about Night's Queen and the idea of Dawn as the original ice. So there you go, everyone. Thanks a lot. And I'm now going to look for the button that will end the stream. There is literally not an obvious end stream button here. Maybe I just have to close it. Yeah, this is a pretty funny ending, isn't it?